0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, Activism from Best of the Left, Radio Lab, and On the Media. And a note that today's episode is a rerun, but it is a rerun that I feel like needs to be heard at this moment.
1: 2004. The Academy Award for Best Documentary went to a film called The Fog of War.
2: Was there a rule then that said you shouldn't bomb, uh, shouldn't kill, shouldn't burn to death, 100,000 civilians in a night? LeMay said if we'd lost the war, we'd all have been prosecuted as war criminals. And I think he's right. He and I'd say I were behaving as war criminals.
1: Robert McNamara, who served as defense secretary during the Vietnam War and before that served in the Air Force during World War II. In The Fog of War, Robert McNamara reflects at length on war and morality and his own complicity as a human being and as a U.S. policymaker. And the film is uh, both moving and, in a way, cathartic.
2: We all make mistakes. We know we make mistakes. I don't know any military commander who is honest, who would say he has not made a mistake. There's a wonderful phrase, the fog of war, what the fog of war means is war is so complex. It's beyond the ability of the human mind to comprehend all the variables, our judgment our understanding, are not adequate. And we kill people unnecessarily.
1: It's from The Fog of War. Uh, The man who made that Oscar-winning film, Errol Morris, now has a new film out called The Unknown Known, in which he subjects Donald Rumsfeld to the same kind of scrutiny uh, as Robert McNamara from The Fog of War. Uh, But in this film, Donald Rumsfeld has no similar interest in scrutinizing himself.
3: Osama gets away, and a confusion sets in. People began to think that Saddam was connected with
4: al-Qaeda and with 9-11. Oh, I don't think so. It was very clear that the direct planning for 9-11 was done by Osama bin Laden's people, al-Qaeda, and in Afghanistan. I don't think the American people were confused about that. In 2003, in a Washington Post poll, 69% said they believe it is likely the Iraqi leader was personally involved in the attacks carried out by Al-Qaeda. I don't remember anyone in the Bush administration saying anything like that, nor do I recall anyone believing that. Mr. Secretary, today in a broadcast interview, uh, Saddam Hussein uh, said, there is only one truth, Iraq has no weapons of mass destruction whatsoever. And he went on to say, I would like to tell you directly we have no relationship with Al-Qaeda. Uh, and Abraham Lincoln was short. <laughs> would you care to respond directly to what Saddam Hussein had said today? How does one respond to that? It's just a a continuous pattern. This is a case of of the the local liar coming up again, and people repeating what he said and forgetting to say that he never, almost never, rarely tells the truth.
1: That is Donald Rumsfeld, former defense secretary, as seen in the new Errol Morris film, Uh, *The Unknown Known*. And you know, it, it is amazing that Donald Rumsfeld is denying. Not only did people believe there was a connection between Iraq and al-Qaeda, but denying that he had any role in propagating that idea. I mean, I mean, Errol Morris debunks it right there in that minute-and-a-half-long clip, but the proof of this is everywhere. Look, this is Donald Grumsfeld in 2002. Quote, we do have solid evidence of the presence in Iraq of al-Qaeda members. We have what we consider to be very reliable reporting of senior-level contacts between Iraq and al-Qaeda going back a decade. This is the transcript of Donald Rumsfeld speaking to the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, bragging about how the evidence linking Al-Qaeda and Iraq, linking 9-11 and Iraq, was, in his words, quote, bulletproof. But now Donald Rumsfeld totally denies that he ever believed there was a connection between the two or that he had any role in making other people believe that connection as well uh, NBC's Michael Isakoff just today uh, shared with us a new document that has never been publicly released before uh, showing that when Donald Rumsfeld was told that the 9-11 hijacker Mohammed Atta had not actually met with Iraqi officials like the Bush administration had been publicly claiming he had Donald Rumsfeld pushed back on that and asked how it was possible to know that. Mohammed Atta hadn't met with the Iraqis. He asked, couldn't Mohammed Atta have been wearing a blonde wig or something when he had the meeting? How could we know he didn't do it? But it is amazing to have Donald Rumsfeld on film, right? It's it's one thing to know that they're lying. It's another thing to see them lying on film right to your face Uh, and to see how comfortable a guy like Donald Rumsfeld is with himself and his total shamelessness. Here's one more uh, very short clip from the film. Just watch at the very end of this one the sort of shock and revelation from Donald Rumsfeld and how proud of himself he is about this. Watch this. I find this just incredible.
5: What about all
4: these so-called torture memos? Well, there were what, one or two or three. I, I don't know the number, but there were not all of these so-called memos. They were mischaracterized as torture memos, and they came not out of the Bush administration per se. They came out of the U.S. Department of Justice, blessed by the attorney general, the senior legal official of the United States of America, having been nominated by a president and confirmed by the United States Senate overwhelmingly. Little different cast I just put on it than the one you did. I'll chalk that one up. Was
6: the reaction unfair? Well,
4: I've never read them.
1: Really? No.
4: I'm not a lawyer. What would I know?
1: That's Errol Morris, the filmmaker, shouting, really? It's kind of the best thing about that. Other than the revelation from Donald Rumsfeld that he never bothered to read the supposedly all-important memos that they said legally justified what everybody knew was torture. And and Donald Rumsfeld, of course, is just amazing as a character. Errol Morris at one point walks him through how easily Donald Rumsfeld might very well have ended up being President of the United States had things not gone slightly differently in his own history. Had he been picked as Vice President at one point, which was very possible. It's kind of a throw your popcorn in the air and fall down screaming moment, right? The prospect of Donald Rumsfeld, President of the United States. I think that's why this film is being billed in some ways as a horror movie. But beyond just Just the character issues here and what's fascinating to see about this person who's so important in our history. This film also comes out at a really important time in terms of the larger issue of whether or not we as the American public are going to decide that we ought to know what is true about our recent and difficult history. Whether we are going to decide that we ought to know the real truth about bad things our country has done and our government has done. Today, the Senate Intelligence Committee voted 11 to 3 to declassify a long-awaited report on the subject of those memos that Donald Rumsfeld so proudly said he had never read. The Senate Intelligence Committee report on on the CIA torturing prisoners after 9/11. It apparently runs more than 6,000 pages in total. What they voted on today was to declassify about 500 pages of that report. It's a sort of summary of the report's findings that they will now send to the president. The White House will then read. Review it for declassification purposes, and then it will come out to the public. And and, you know, this this vote is being reported today, uh, and leading up to this vote today, there's been widespread reporting that there's some ambiguity about whether or not we're ultimately going to get to see it, whether or not the White House ultimately will decide to declassify this part of this report uh, and release it publicly. I got to say, that ambiguity does not seem like it is warranted. If only because President Obama has been very clear about the fact that he is going to declassify this report, he is going to let us see it.
6: The first day I came into office, I ended the practices that are subject to the investigation by uh, the Senate committee and uh, have been very clear that I believe they were contrary to our values as a country. Uh, Since that time, we have worked with the Senate committee uh, so that the... Report that they uh, are uh, putting forward uh, is well informed, and what I've said is that I am absolutely committed to declassifying that report uh, as soon as the report is completed. In fact, I would urge them to go ahead and complete the report, send it to us. We will uh, declassify those findings uh, so that. Uh, the American people uh, can uh, understand uh, what happened in the past and that can help guide us uh, as we move forward.
1: The president has been pretty clear about this and and because of that this historic vote today in the Senate Intelligence Committee means that the summary of this big torture report is finally going to come out and when that happens we are going to have a lot of access to a lot of information about what our country did that we have never known before. And again, it is not expected to be good news, it's expected to be terrible news.
7: The purpose of this review was to uncover the facts behind this secret program. And the results, I think, were shocking. The report exposes brutality that stands in stark contrast to our values as a nation. It chronicles a stain on our history that must never be allowed to happen again. This is not what Americans do. The release of this summary and conclusions in the near future shows that this nation admits its errors, as painful as they may be, and seeks to learn from them. We are acknowledging those mistakes and we have a continuing responsibility to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again
1: we're on the precipice of something here the long fight over releasing this report has been about the very basic question of whether or not we get to know what happened deciding that we just do not want to know is obviously more comfortable for everyone involved but it is just as obviously the cowardly way out and it is absolutely short-sighted if we do have a national interest in not repeating the error. In 2006 when then-President George W. Bush gave this speech for the first time acknowledging the existence of the CIA having a secret network of prisons that it set up after 9-11 George W. Bush said explicitly and repeatedly in that speech that torture techniques uh, what he called alternative sets of procedures used by the CIA to interrogate people he said explicitly that those techniques were how they found Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of 9-11. The President of the United United States himself said explicitly and repeatedly and in great detail that the CIA torturing people worked, that it got us information we never could have gotten any other way. People who have seen this report that's about to be declassified say that it directly and factually contradicts the President's claims. If it's true, and, and the report proves it, then either the president will be proven to be lying about a matter that is, after all, war crimes, or the CIA will have to explain why it lied to the president in such a way that made him lie to the country. This is very, very uncomfortable stuff. The CIA does not want to be talking about this. You can tell that Dianne Feinstein doesn't even really want to be talking about this. You can tell that the Obama administration does not want to be talking about this. I mean, they were the ones who said they wanted to move forward and not look to the past, right? They said they wouldn't be prosecuting any of these matters after the Department of Justice looked into it. Certainly most of all, you can imagine that the administration of George W. Bush and George W. Bush himself, they do not want to be talking about this. On the day the Senate Intelligence Committee voted today to declassify key sections of this potentially earth-shattering report, President Bush was previewing his new gallery show of his new paintings that he's done of world leaders. He previewed his new show of paintings in a sweet new interview with his own daughter, which is going to be airing on the Today Show tomorrow morning. That is what the former president wants to be talking about. But history has a way of sneaking up on you. History has a way of shaking you awake just as you are trying to drift off to sleep. History does not let go.
4: You started-
3: You know how the Senate did a report on uh, torture and whether it worked. It was a 6,300-page report. There's been a lot of drama around it. Uh, The CIA accused them of looking at uh, CIA documents they weren't supposed to look at. In reality, of course, CIA gave them access to those documents because they had to. Uh, Then the Senate said that the CIA spied in on their computers as the Senate uh, aides were doing the investigation. That is a very heavy charge. And there's... Uh, been a a lot of uh, accusations on both sides. But the most important thing is what's the substance of the report? And they haven't been able to release that because the CIA is holding it. Is that funny? It's a report about the CIA, and the people who have to redact it and approve it for uh, release to the public is the CIA. So now the leaks have begun, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've now held it for several years. We're going to tell the American people what's in this anyway. So Washington Post's a very good story uh, about what's in the report. They explain that the report shows that uh... the cia was concealing details about the severity of its methods overstating the significance of plots and prisoners that's really interesting i'll tell you more about that in a second taking credit for critical piece of intelligence that detainees surrendered before they were tortured a summary from the washington post explains the report built around detailed chronologies of dozens of cia detainees documents a long-standing pattern of unsubstantiated claims as agency officials sought permission to use and later tried to defend excruciating interrogation methods that yielded little, if any, significant intelligence, according to U.S. officials who have reviewed the document. So that's your leak telling you what's actually in that 6,300-page report. So now, let's get into the specifics. the CIA had been saying all along, no, 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 the way, the way we got bin Laden was we had this lead information that we got through the torture, I mean the enhanced interrogation, and then at the end we got the very important information uh, also telling us uh, through the enhanced interrogation program where bin Laden was. Now, of course, it turns out that's not at all true, so let me give you those details. Uh, Senators Dianne Feinstein and Carl Levin, who worked on the report, it's a Senate report, said the original lead information had no connection to CIA detainees, none. No connection, okay? Remember, they interviewed all the CIA guys, they had all the documents, and it's an exhaustive study of uh, what actually happened. No connection. Now, they continue, the CIA learned of the courier, and now that's of course how we caught bin Laden, his true name and location through means unrelated to the CIA detention and interrogation program. Uh, that's fairly clear. They go on to say, uh, terror suspects who were waterboarded provided no new information about the courier and offered no indication of where bin Laden was hiding. Now, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed at one point said there was a courier, because of course there was. How else would you get information to him? That was not a big revelation. Uh, he didn't give the guy's name. In fact, he gave a wrong name. So he actually gave no information. Now, you know how many times Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded? 183 times. So now that might give you a good clue as to the uh, efficiency of waterboarding and the effectiveness of it. Because if it didn't work the first 182 times, you might be onto something that perhaps is not going to work. And apparently at 183, they were like, "Yeah, no, nope, still don't have the information. Let's call it a day." You see, if torture worked, you'd only have to do it a couple of times. Okay. Now. Uh, more specifics about Khalid Muhammad, Mohammed, who was a critical player in 9-11, and uh, he was caught early on, which was great. Uh, more information about what he revealed or did not reveal. Mohammed only discussed al-Kuwaiti months after being waterboarded. Now, that's the courier. So, it was not during the waterboarding. While he was under standard interrogation that they said, standard interrogation got the information, and Mohammed neither acknowledged al-Kuwaiti's significance, nor provided interrogators with the courier's real name so months after the waterboarding he says yeah there's a courier. that's it wow ladies and gentlemen they got him now that is not how we track the guy down because we don't have his name we didn't have anything from that we already knew he had a courier alright u.s. associate of press goes on to explain u.s. officials have described how alibi uh, uh, who was another detainee that was tortured, made up a name for a trusted courier and denied knowing al-Kuwaiti. That's the courier. Uh, Libby, they said, was so adamant and unbelievable in his denial that the CIA took it as confirmation he and Mohammed were protecting the courier. That's my favorite. It, the torture didn't work to the degree that we thought, well, he's denying it so much it must be the opposite. <laughs> But wait a minute, if torture worked, wouldn't he just say, okay, you got me, man, I can't take this anymore, here's his real name. No, the torture doesn't work, and he says, no, I don't know a guy like that, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, gotcha. Turns out you do know. And second of all, he didn't give the name, so, but you already knew he had a courier. This is useless crap. All right. Uh, The Senate Intelligence Committee acknowledged an unidentified third detainee had provided relevant information on the courier, but they said he did so the day before he was subjected to harsh CIA interrogation. In fact, uh, famously, FBI agent Ali Safan got information from one of of the detainees and said he was uh, cooperative. The CIA came in, started torturing him, and he stopped cooperating. Nice job and since then the hideous torture that they've been doing got no information at all and ever since then it's been just cover your ass cover your ass cover your ass oh very important we can't tell you anything about it. it's classified but boy we really broke those guys <laughs> we got them they said there was some courier at some point <laughs> yeah. no you idiots if anything you stopped the information that was flowing which by the way the fbi was doing a good job of extracting so credit to the fbi All right. Now, one more from the Associated Press here about what's in the report. In any case, they say, it still took the CIA years to learn al-Kuwaiti's real identity, Sheikh Abu Ahmed, a Pakistani man born in Kuwait. How the U.S. learned of Ahmed's name is still unclear. So after all of this, and the so-called evidence the CIA gives about how they used torture to get this information, it's still classified how they got the information in the first place, many years later through non ent- enhanced interrogation techniques so all of that was total crap they got the name from someone else using different methods and they don't want to admit how they got it because it's embarrassing what a failure they were and what how sick and depraved this torture was now to the point of how sick depraved and unnecessary this p- torture was go back to the washington post report on this they say the report also cites cases in which officials at cia headquarters demanded the continued use of harsh interrogation techniques Even after analysts were convinced that prisoners had no more information to give. Isn't that amazing? What psychopaths? They say, look, we tortured the hell out of this guy. He's got no information left. We're positive. They go, oh, that's interesting. Torture him again. That means they didn't give a damn about the information it was just some sort of sick revenge plot i guess like haha we got him. and of course the most relevant which i've told you about before is they didn't want to get the correct information what torture does a really good job of is getting incorrect information one of the guys tortured in egypt on our behalf with the cia watching when they did a mock execution of him and he thought he was going to be buried alive said okay guys what do you want to hear you want to hear that Uh, Iraq has something to do with it? Fine, I'll tell you Iraq has something to do with it. They're like, great, let's go invade Iraq. And later they said, yeah, it turns out that was BS and we didn't corroborate it. They wanted to get bad information and they just got off on it. Why else would you continue to do it when even your own analysts say there's no more information left in this guy? All right, now, on to the uh, overselling of the information. The CIA also oversaw the role of Abd al-Rahim Al-Nashiri in the 2000 bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen, which killed 17 US sailors. CIA officials claimed he was the mastermind. So, it turns out that he was just a bit player. Now, why did they have an incentive to do that? Again, self puffery They go out in the press. Oh, we got the mastermind. Don't worry about it, guys. All those things we didn't solve because we were out having fun torturing people. <laughs> no, yeah. no, 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 sure he is. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. mastermind. Yeah, no, we got him. Don't worry about it. Did you get the actual culprits? No, sorry. We got a bit player. We called him a mastermind for PR purposes. Hey, CIA, thanks for protecting us. And then they talk about Hassan Gül, another bit uh, bit player that they got. They say, but Gül disclosed uh, that detail while being interrogated by Kurdish authorities in northern Iraq who posed questions scripted by CIA, CIA analysts. The information from that period was subsequently conflated with lesser intelligence gathered from Gül at a secret CIA prison in Romania. In other words, they're using these black sites where they torture people, but they say that they got the main information from this guy that they tortured in Romania, Uh, from the torture, but it turns out when you look at the evidence, no. The Kurdish authorities got it. Look, if they left well enough alone, the Kurds at least used the CIA script. You could have taken credit for that, right? But no, 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 no. They had to make sure that they weren't going to get prosecuted. So they claimed that all information came from torture when they full well knew that it didn't. By the way, whatever happened to Hassan Gurd? Well, he was so dangerous that we had to torture him. But then we released him. Isn't that weird? There's still over 100 guys in Guantanamo Bay. Why did we release this guy that we tortured in the black-site prison and gave us critical information? Huh. What happened to Gil, anyway? Oh, look at this. He was killed by a CIA drone strike in 2012. I guess not around to contradict the CIA anymore. Funny how that works. All right. Now, finally, uh, we get to one of the uh, interesting players here, here in the U.S. in the CIA. Officials said a former CIA interrogator named Charlie Wise was forced to retire in 2003 after being suspected of abusing Abu Zubaydah. All right, so uh, this Charlie Wise guy—he was one of the guys doing torture—but it's okay; at least he resigned. So, what happened to Charlie Wise? He died of a heart attack shortly after retiring from the CIA. Former U.S. intelligence officials said. Now. I wouldn't have brought that up, except that the Washington Post ended the article on that. It was a curious thing to end the article on. It's as if they're trying to tell us something like, well, we, we haven't fully gotten all the evidence of what happened to Charlie Wise, but if you notice, Gould wound up dead, and Charlie Wise wound up dead right after he retired. I'm not saying anything. There it is in the last paragraph. <laughs> no, no, but don't worry. Just trust the CIA. Anyway, now we find out that they've been clowns, they've been incompetent, they've been trying to cover their tracks, and the torture didn't work. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go get them, right? Well, let me read you this line. The report also does not recommend new administrative punishment or further criminal inquiry into a program that the Justice Department has investigated repeatedly. In other words, despite the fact that we know torture didn't work, that they lied about it and covered it up, we don't look backward we only look forward there will be no prosecutions welcome to america
8: We covered last month when Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's usually a, you know, quite uh, 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 respectful, will be the neutral word to say, of the intelligence apparatus, quite close with the intelligence community, went to the Senate floor in rage, in what was definitely genuine rage, accusing the CIA of basically surveilling uh Uh, staffers on the Senate Intelligence Committee. And all of this went back to a report and an investigation on Bush-era torture policies. Uh, So there's some new things that have come out that have been leaked out of this report uh, that will probably come as not a surprise to anybody, but they're really important to note nonetheless. So basically, this is according to a report in McClatchy. A still-secret... Senate Intelligence Committee report calls into question the Senate's legal foundation use of waterboarding and other harsh uh, techniques against terrorist suspects. Now, we already know that generally, but here are the specifics. One is that the CIA lied about how they were implementing the interrogation techniques and the amount of detainees that were subjected to these techniques. So one, as an example... The CIA's claim is, quote, BS, said one U.S. official familiar with with evidence underpinning the report, who asked not to be identified because the matter is still classified. They're trying to minimize the damage, and they're trying to say it was a very targeted program, but it's not the case. Now, if you notice, anytime someone like Liz Cheney or another apologist of torture programs is on television, they'll always talk about the specificity. Well, we only did this to a couple of suspects. And we know we have clear numbers on all of these things, and we know who we did it to and how many times we did it and what specific conditions. Well, this report is showing that it's not true. It was done to a lot more uh, people. The report's findings are among 20 conclusions taken together that paint a picture of an intelligence agency that seemed intent on evading or misleading nearly all of its oversight mechanisms throughout the program, which was launched under the Bush administrations after the September 11th terrorist attacks. So here are the key Uh, conclusions. The CIA used methods that weren't approved by the Department of Justice or CIA headquarters. Now, this is another really important distinction. So we know that the Department of Justice signed off on torture techniques, uh, and we know that there was a push for legal codification uh, to codify legally torture programs. And that's, of course, a very significant area of controversy and a huge blemish on the entire record of the Bush administration. But what we know now from this report is that even in that context, the CIA was lying uh, to people in the Justice Department about what, these practices actually were. So as an example, they said, "You know, you've, I'm sure you've heard this one floating around, the waterboarding uh, program is not really any different from something that uh, Marines go through in basic training. Well, of course it wasn't implemented in the same way when it was being used on detainees. Uh, the agency impeded, impeded effective White House oversight and decision-making with regard to the program. The CIA actively or evaded or impeded congressional oversight of the program, and, they see, and, the, uh, and the agency hindered oversight of the program by its inspector general's office. report goes on to say, the techniques included not only waterboarding, but also confinement to a cramped box, slaps and slamming detainees into the walls, and all of these took place at the black sites, which we're already familiar with. And the Senate report has concluded, this is going back to the Justice Department, the Senate report concluded that the Justice Department's legal analysis was based off of flawed information given by the CIA. So at each step of the process, you basically had a sign-off from an administration that wanted to break the law to begin with, that wanted to break international norms by engaging in torture. Then the CIA operationally lied to the White House and to Congress by extending that program. Then they attempted to monitor, uh, to monitor and intimidate people on the incel- Intelligence Committee as this report is being done, concluding that the program was a failure in terms of substantive achievements, and went far beyond what public defenders of the program had claimed about it, which, even in and of itself, what they claimed was a violation of Geneva and other international accords. And the final point on this, again, and, and unfortunately, it really bears repeating. Now, I do think President Obama did halt these practices. Uh, Now, that said, as soon as the decision was made to not have a full, clear accounting of this process, I mean, and look, there's a distinction here, too. You could say a legal accounting of this process, which is absolutely valid that people should face legal consequences. There's also a Truth and Reconciliation Commission model, where you could have a model, again, it was a different situation, but the principle of a place like South Africa where there's a full, there, there's some type of amnesty, but there is a full public airing of crimes and misdeeds and explanations of them. So there is a clear historic record, there's clear at least public and institutional accountability and then we can truly move on to the next place, the next uh, phase. But obviously this program, which we know the CIA was being dishonest about throughout, is still defining us and uh, still shaping us to such a point that they're trying to basically distort and block the release of an incredibly damning uh, report, which is overseen by Feinstein, who again has no grievance against the CIA. (laughs)
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism Amnesty International's Stop Torture Campaign. Despite 155 countries having ratified the United Nations Convention Against Torture since 1985, Amnesty International's research has found that more than half of the 142 countries they've investigated still participate in activity prohibited by the convention. A new global survey of more than 21,000 people in 21 countries across every continent found that nearly half of respondents fear torture if taken into police or government custody, and more than 80% want strong laws to protect them from torture. Stephen W. Hawkins, Amnesty International USA's executive director, spoke with reporter Katie Ruck at Mint Press News, quote, 30 years after adopting a landmark treaty against torture, the world's governments continue to violate it in practice. Torture is a crisis not only in Mexico or Nigeria, where torture by security personnel is widespread, but also here at home. The infamous cases of Chicago police torture and the still-secret Senate report on CIA torture underscore that safeguards are still needed in our country. With the tenuous at best moral position the U.S. holds regarding torture, it is especially important for us to speak out. We must understand that this is an international problem and we have a place in the discourse and the culture that allows it to continue. Amnesty International has launched Stop Torture, a campaign with both the broad goal of ending human rights violating practices entirely and supporting individuals who have suffered torture at the hands of their government. The Take Action tab at Amnesty.org will take you to their first five petitions calling for justice on behalf of five individuals. You can help put pressure on officials in Mexico, Nigeria, Morocco, Uzbekistan, and the Philippines, and Amnesty International is just getting started. Quote, Governments around the world are two-faced on torture, prohibiting it by law, but facilitating it in practice, said Salil Shidi, Amnesty International's secretary-general, as he launched the Stop Torture campaign. Quote, Torture is not just alive and well. It is flourishing in many parts of the world. As more governments seek to justify torture in the name of national security, the steady progress made in this field over the last 30 years is being eroded. Help amplify the heart-wrenching stories of torture victims at home and abroad through Amnesty International's petition drive and by using the Stop Torture hashtag on Twitter. We just observed yet another National Day of Action to close Guantanamo Bay. If we are to see the end of torture here and around the world, we must be vocal and persistent. Governments and regimes don't change without pressure, and it's our responsibility to be that pressure.
9: Activism.
10: Come on out from in front of the television Bust out of your self-imposed media prison There's a whole big world out there, y'all And some serious stuff is going down Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days And it will not be your saving grace Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage?
9: If you really want to understand the world we live in now, you've got to jump ahead one day to September 12th to a corner office in the White House where there's a lawyer sitting at a computer trying
11: to figure out how are we going to declare war? and one of the things that everybody realizes after sort of an initial discussion is yes we'd like to declare war but we have no idea upon whom we should declare war that is gregory johnson the michael hastings national security reporting fellow at buzzfeed now the reason this lawyer a man by the name of timothy flanagan the reason
9: flanagan is sitting at a computer in an office is because then president george bush had to do something he had to act and he didn't want to act alone he wanted congressional approval right I mean, technically, in an emergency... The president can defend the country. He is the commander-in-chief, after all. He doesn't have to go to Congress and say, hey, do I have authorization to use force? Not an emergency. That's Ben Wittes, by the way. Senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. But President Bush needed Congress on his side, he felt. You know, it was important that we project unity that we were all standing together as one. And second, if this was an act of war... The power to declare war in the Constitution is given to Congress, not to the executive. And when Congress declares war, suddenly the president has a very clear and powerful mandate.
12: Now, the declaration of war is kind of a dead instrument of international law. I mean, nobody's declared war since World War II. But the modern incarnation of the declaration of war is the authorization to use force
11: the authorization to use force what's called the authorization for the use of military force
9: or as it's commonly referred to the AUMF
11: right so our lawyer in the White House Flanagan He's given a task. Go write an AOMF that Congress can send to the president. He really has no idea, so he goes back to the last time that the US did this. Last time Congress passed one of these things. He does a quick sort of search on his computer. Boom, finds it. 1991, Iraq, the Gulf War. Flanagan grabs the text. And then he copies that into a Word document, and that becomes his template. He makes some cuts, he makes some changes, he deletes some words. And then, he hits send. Our war on terror.
9: A just war. And he sets in motion this bewildering series of events. A U.S. drone strike linked to Al-Qaeda.
10: In the war, bring the troops
9: home now. This madness that is basically the world we live in. The Taliban. Is... Fifteen members of a wedding procession were killed by And if you're like me. Bizarre, even
2: sadistic treatment. If
9: you're like me and you find yourself flipping through the channels, seeing the news, basically ignoring it, but then every so often thinking, wait a second.
8: Terrorism targets in Africa.
9: From in Libya now, the U.S. Air Force. A drone strike in southern Somalia. Wait, wait, how are we doing this in all these different places?
1: 100 prisoners are on a hunger strike. And like that. In protest of their indefinite detention.
9: How, how, how are we detaining people for so long? You mean, is, is it okay to do that? Well, just who signed off on this, yeah. you know? And it turns out we all did because it was in that document.
11: This is the legal foundation for everything that the U.S. has done. Everything from Guantanamo Bay to drone strikes to secret renditions to seal rates. It's all been hung off these 60 words. And that's the crazy
9: part. The body of this document, the part that really matters. And the reason that when I was reading Gregory's reporting on this, I was like, what? Is that it all goes back to one single
11: sentence. 60 words, one sentence. Can you read it? Absolutely. That the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001 or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. Sixty words.
10: Say goodbye.
5: History doesn't always move ahead. Sometimes it slips backwards. Case in point, in 2012, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of official U.S. involvement in Vietnam, the Pentagon quietly launched VietnamWar50th.com. The sprawling website includes a detailed interactive timeline of the Vietnam War, but historian Nick Terse, the author of Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam, noticed that the website's version of the war seems stuck in the 60s and 70s, reasserting misinformation long since debunked by journalists, historians, and the government's own Pentagon Papers. But Terse does admit that at first glance, the website is impressive, full of primary source materials.
12: The Pentagon Papers are posted on the site. There's a big, sprawling timeline with 800 historical entries spanning from the 1800s all the way to the 1970s. It looks like an impressive historical offering, but when you look closer, you find that there are some real problems there.
5: Yeah, you don't actually have to look all that closely because the problems begin with the moment of the U.S.'s major escalation of the war after the so-called Gulf of Tonkin incident when North Vietnamese torpedo boats supposedly on consecutive days attacked U.S. warships in the Gulf. Here's President Johnson on August 4th, 1964.
13: Repeated acts of violence against the armed forces of the United States must be met not only with alert defense, but with positive reply.
5: A story that has been turned upside down by historians looking at documentation, and
12: yet... And yet, when you look at the timeline entries on the Department of Defense's website, you find that they've stuck to the original narrative, what people were told back in 1964, that a second attack took place that U.S. ships were sailing innocently through the Gulf of Tonkin off the coast of North Vietnam. We know now, of course, that American ships were there because there were covert raids being carried out on the North Vietnamese coast, and that's why there was a first attack on a U.S. ship. The second attack on a U.S. ship actually never took place, but none of this appears in the timeline.
5: One of the great horrors of the war, the My Lai Massacre, significantly turned the public against U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Here's veteran Ronald Lee Ridenauer who in 1969
2: first disclosed the killing spree at My Lai. They had seen individual soldiers and some of the officers going through the village, and as they swept through the village, if there were people standing by the side of the trail, they just gunned them down, that they shot them. They saw them, these people
12: shot with no provocation. When the My Lai scandal broke in 1969, the U.S. military took great pains to refer to it as an incident and not a massacre, and the entry in the timeline sticks to this playbook. The entry also lists the number of civilians killed as more than 200 instead of more than 500, and it singles out only Lieutenant William Calley as being responsible for the massacre. Now Calley certainly had plenty of blood on his hands, but it's farcical to make it seem as if the deaths of 500 civilians could be the fault of a lone junior officer.
5: Is it that the events to this day are controversial, or is the Pentagon simply ignoring all of our contemporary knowledge of what took place?
12: I think there really is a whitewashing that's taking place. There's another entry in the timeline that really stuck out to me, Operation Speedy Express, and that occurred in late 1968, early 1969. And the timeline entry says that the operation was a success and that 11,000 enemy troops were killed but Speedy Express was really a bloodbath. It was 10 to 12 times the size of the My Lai Massacre. And this is according to the U.S. military's own estimates that I found in long classified investigations files at the U.S. National Archives. In those files, the military admits that likely 5,000 to 7,000 of the dead were Vietnamese civilians. So about 60% of those 11,000 killed. But the Pentagon offers up a completely sanitized history of this operation information that's false by their own records.
5: Now, one of the great scandals of the war was the revelation that there had been a parallel war going on, a secret war launched with President Nixon's approval in Cambodia. He bypassed Congress. He even bypassed some of his own military brass. Does the timeline do justice to those events?
12: That's another glaring mistake in the timeline. There's an entry in March 1969 for Operation Menu, this is what we know as the secret bombing of Cambodia. The timeline entry, I noticed, had a picture of President Nixon from a press conference apparently announcing the strikes and pointing out on a map where they were taking place. I knew that this was a, a gross deception. The strikes were covered up through a vast conspiracy that involved coded messages, burned documents. It actually took him four years to even admit that these covert attacks took place. But the Pentagon's timeline is that this was all out in the open and Nixon was upfront with the American people.
5: Now, you noticed these errors and you got in touch with the Pentagon. Were they responsive?
12: When I originally contacted the Vietnam Commemoration Office, I was led through twists and turns and didn't get any concrete answers. I was told that all my requests for information would be forwarded to the Lieutenant Colonel Tom Crosson. In the office of the Secretary of Defense. Immediately, the name rang a bell because I contacted Lieutenant Colonel Croson dealing with my book, Kill Anything That Moves, and the information that I have in there from U.S. military records. You know, what he told me was, you know, though 40 years had passed since the end of the war, he doubted it was possible for the military to provide an official statement in what he called a timely manner.
5: And I gather he was exactly as forthcoming this time around.
12: I'm still waiting for him to get back to me.
5: So, let's just assume that the U.S. government put its spin on history. How much does it matter? Scholars certainly are not going to turn first to the Pentagon to get the secret history
12: of the Pentagon. It's troubling because the site not only seeks to inform the American public, but it makes a special play for children in grammar school and high school with a special section for educators. So the Department of Defense is peddling its inaccurate and misleading claims to youngsters creating a false narrative about the war. And the Pentagon has in some sense unleashed a salvo with this website. They're literally rewriting history. Can
10: you the Will you
9: you should introduce us to Barbara Lee.
11: Right. Barbara Lee is a congresswoman from right around Berkeley, California. Hello. Hello, hello. Hi, it's Barbara. Barbara. And she is someone who has been, in many ways, a lifelong activist.
9: Going all the way back to when she was 15 in high school in San Fernando Valley. Because I wanted to be a cheerleader. But, you know, since this was the early 60s. You had to have certain criteria like... At least whether
7: it was stated or not, blonde and blue eyes.
9: (laughs) That (laughs) that would have been hard for you, I would
11: figure.
7: (laughs) that was really hard. So I went to the NAACP.
11: She got them to pressure the school to change the rules. And I won. And she became the first black cheerleader um, at, at her high school. Yeah, yeah
9: that's just by way of introduction fast forward many years she becomes a congresswoman she gets elected to a second term and on that day
11: there is smoke pouring out of the
7: pentagon she was at the capitol no one knew where to go so the police officers just said run 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 go 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 this was an apparent terrorist attack on our country so I ran out of the capitol down Pennsylvania Avenue I remember looking back and saw a lot of
9: smoke which was you know the pentagon
7: you know clearly the country's under attack clearly people have died clearly. We've got to deal with whoever did this.
9: Whatever it takes. Fast forward two days, September 13th, Barbara Lee is back at the Capitol to meet with her Democratic colleagues to review that document that Flanagan had sent over.
11: The mood in the room was very somber and very angry. The thing we have to keep in mind when we're talking about this is all of this was done within 72 hours after the worst terrorist attack in United States history. And very confused, what would be the appropriate response? So as she and her colleagues read those 60 words, there was a lot of debate going on back and forth. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. From everyone. Because this actually wasn't the first draft. Flanagan had sent one over the night before. September 12, 2001. And that one was something that almost no one agreed to. According to Gregory, that early draft had a few extra lines in it. One gave the president the power to preempt any future acts of aggression against the United States. And Barbara Lee and her colleagues knew that, look, so many things can be packed into this word aggression, that if we sign on to this, that if we give the president this power, The president may never have to come back to Congress ever again and request authorization for military force because he can say that anything is aggression, and we're also giving him the power to preempt. So they kicked it back to the White House, Flanagan took out those words, and now they have this new draft. That the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force.
9: Which is what you heard. But still, when Barbara read that and saw phrases like all necessary and appropriate force, she thought, what does that even mean? I said, this is
7: too
11: broad, it's not definitive, it's open-ended. And as she was speaking, this is taking place in the basement of the Capitol building, she sees some of her Democratic colleagues start to nod. Yep, people were nodding, people were nodding. Because
9: everybody there knew the danger of ill-defined
11: words. You just had to go back 50 years. To the Gulf of Tonkin. Yep.
9: Gulf of Tonkin. 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 Tonkin with an N. Yes. To explain.
13: My fellow Americans as President and Commander-in-Chief.
9: 1964, LBJ announces that two American ships Two U.S.
13: destroyers
9: parked in the Gulf of Tonkin off the coast of Vietnam were torpedoed by North Vietnamese boats. By a
13: number of hostile vessels.
9: Many people now argue that one of these attacks never even happened. Nonetheless, President Johnson wanted to strike back, so he asked Congress To pass a resolution. Which they did, giving him the power to, quote, take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression.
13: Making it clear that our government is united in its determination to take all necessary measures in support of freedom and in defense of peace in Southeast Asia.
9: Now it is the broad language of that document, most people believe, that opened the door to the worst part of the Vietnam War. The rangers and marines took casualties, mostly from hidden snipers. The thousands and thousands of casualties. Just keep
2: dropping in. There's
9: nothing you can do. Horrific atrocities. Charges have been made
13: that troops killed as many as 567 South Vietnamese civilians during a sweep in March 1968.
9: And in a television interview in 1969, when President Johnson was asked to justify it all, he said you can't just blame him.
13: Congress gave us this authority in August 1964 to do whatever may be necessary. That's pretty far-reaching.
9: That's the sky's the limit. So the lessons of the Gulf of Tongan and Vietnam, that was very much in the air in that meeting on September 13th, 2001.
8: Several key leaders hoped to avoid a repeat of the 1964 Tonkin Gulf Resolution.
9: So it was understandable that when Barbara Lee stood up and said to her colleagues that she was worried about some of this language... People were nodding. People were nodding. So there was a lot of uncertainty about what to do. But in the end, those concerns were ultimately outweighed by another desire.
7: We've
11: got to be unified with the president. We can't show political divisions. Let's have the nation, let's have Congress speaking with one voice.
9: It was a time for unity and for action. And so walking out of that Democratic
11: caucus meeting... On the evening of September 13th... Congressional leadership decided that these 60 words... This is the version. There's no going back to the drawing board. And so... That ten sixteen AM, September 14, thousand and one. Senate will come to order. The, the Senate is gaveled into session. The clerk will call the roll. Dashell calls a vote. Mr. Akaka.
2: Mr. Allard. Mr. Allen.
11: There are ninety eight senators on the floor.
2: Mr. Durbin. Mr. Voinovich.
11: All ninety eight of them vote yay.
2: No senator voted in the negative.
11: So it was a sweep. Yeah.
9: Later in the day, the resolution would go to the House where Barbara Lee was a representative. Daschle had actually rushed the
11: vote through the Senate because the White House has called for a national prayer meeting at the National Cathedral for the victims of 9-11. That's supposed to start right at noon. And so... Right after the vote... All the senators pour out of the Capitol and get onto the buses um, trying to get through the drizzle. It was actually raining that day. Now, at that moment, Barbara Lee... She hadn't decided how it is that she was going to vote. I struggled with it. For the previous two nights, September 12th and 13th, she'd stayed up late. Calling back to advisors, to friends in California. We talked every day. Including this guy. This is Ron Dellums.
9: I served uh, for over 27 years in the U.S. House of Representatives. Barbara used to be his chief of staff, and when he resigned, she won his congressional seat. You know, she would say, well, what about this, and
7: what do you think about that? And we kind of talked through the emotional state of the country. That
9: we are feeling pain anger We're shocked both barbara and ron were trained as psychiatric social workers so they both knew that when a person is feeling all of those things it's generally better to do nothing
7: Yeah, psychology 101 you don't make decisions when you're mourning, afraid on the other hand i believe you know in unity too i want to be unified with the president when the country's under attack i understood he didn't tell me he didn't say which way i should vote but i did
4: say to her barbara however you vote I will always respect you. You will always be friend. You will always be family.
9: So at that moment, with the memorial service about to start in a few hours till the House vote, Barbara Lee was at the Capitol. I was in the
11: cloakroom. And Uh, since she wasn't sure how she was going to vote, she planned to skip the memorial service. She wanted to stay. She wanted to think. And then... I don't know what it was.
7: It may have been the spirit moving me. I don't know, but at the very last minute. She was drinking, actually, a can of ginger ale at the time. I said, I think I'm going to go, and I just ran out. I probably was the last one on the bus. I had the can of ginger ale in my hand and ran down the steps and got on the bus.
11: She got to the cathedral, the house buses arrived about 30 minutes or so before the opening. And so for for 30 minutes, she's in the cathedral. About halfway back, listening to the organ, thinking about the families and those who were killed. There are people around her who are sort of whispering, the pain and anguish, the few people who are crying. I said, I got to pray over this, and she's just wrestling with her vote. Her heart is saying one thing, this is too broad, and her head is saying unity. How is it that you can be against the president at this point?
9: Speaking of the president, eventually President Bush takes the podium.
1: We are here in the middle hour of our grief.
9: Just three days
13: removed from these events, Americans do not yet have the distance of history. But our responsibility to history is already clear, to answer these attacks and rid the world of evil.
11: And then as soon as President Bush steps down, everyone in the congregation stands up and and they, they sing the battle hymn of the republic. which is a very powerful, a very moving um, piece of music. But it's not the sort of thing that is typically sung at a memorial service. It's a, it's a very forward and almost aggressive sounding.
4: As the phrase? Terrible swift sword.
11: Yeah.
2: God.
7: It was not quite what I expected in a memorial service.
11: But the second speaker,
9: a reverend by the name of Nathan Baxter,
11: he got up and he gave a reading from Jeremiah 31. When ancient Israel suffered the excruciating pain and
7: tragedy of militant aggression and destruction hearing that all over again God takes me right back there and i remember a voice is heard in rhema lamenting and, and bitter, weeping. bitter weeping rachel weeping rachel for her children
2: weeping
7: for her children when he spoke that's when to me it to was
11: the a memorial kid, and then he he started to pray for the healing of our grief stricken hearts For the souls and sacred
4: memory of those who have been lost.
11: And he said something that really struck Barbara Lee.
12: Let us also pray for divine wisdom.
11: He said as we act,
12: that as we act,
11: we not become the evil we deplore.
7: That evil that we deplore. When he said that, I became very, it was this sense of peace and calm came over
9: me. And Barbara Lee says it was right then that she knew what she'd do.
5: The clerk will report the title. House
2: Joint Resolution 64, Joint Resolution to Authorize the Use of United States Armed...
9: Later that evening, the House opens up its debate on the AUMF.
3: Speaker.
2: I rise in support of this resolution, which authorizes the president to use all force necessary. In congressperson after congressperson. Mr. Speaker stands up. I rise in support of this resolution. Mr. Speaker,
13: I rise tonight to
2: fully endorse
6: and authorize the use of force.
9: One after another. Mr. Mr. Speaker, I rise in support of the authorization.
6: I rise today in support of this resolution. We will rally behind our president. Sixteen
9: in a row. Until... The gentleman from California is uh, recognized for a minute and a half. We get to Barbara Lee.
7: Mr. Speaker, members, I rise today really with a very heavy heart. One that is filled with sorrow for the families and the loved ones who were killed and injured this week. Only the most foolish and the most callous would not understand the grief that has really gripped our people and millions across the world. Now, I have agonized over this vote. But I came to grips with it today, and I came to grips with opposing this resolution during the very painful, yet very beautiful memorial service. As a member of the clergy so eloquently said, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202 999 3991. So I am not going to pretend that I intended to do a rerun episode today. Uh, I was working on a brand new episode all day long. And about half a dozen completely separate and unrelated uh, issues sort of colluded to bring the whole production to a screeching halt. And I, as I was passing the point of no return, realizing this is just not going to get done today, I, I shifted gears. And I'm sort of glad that that happened because I, I really do feel like this was a very appropriate time to play this particular very appropriate rerun episode. So if you are listening to this point, then thank you for uh, having listened to it. If it's your second time through, or, uh, you know, maybe many of you will be your first. So the reason it is particularly relevant, if it is not obvious, uh, for instance, This past Wednesday was Constitution Day. It's a very appropriate time to sort of reflect on the issues raised in today's episode. So, you know, with these increased calls for aid and military advisors and support and all of the other familiar buzzwords from Congress and the White House, this AP headline, quote, Breaking Obama Mulling Combat Role for U.S. Troops in Iraq Case by Case, was hardly shocking, you know. In fact, it's probably caused you to just overlook it entirely or to have flashbacks due to its redundancy. Those of us who are under 35 don't even have a memory of an era when the U.S. wasn't involved in a military conflict in Iraq. And, you know, perhaps it is time that we wielded these three decades of experience as a weapon of our own, calling on our elected officials to learn from the mistakes of the past So I will close with a section from Garrett Epps' piece. It's called uh, The Constitution is More Than Just an Obstacle. It was published September 17th at The Atlantic magazine, uh, which everyone should read. It says, War needs authorization from Congress. Not little dribs and drabs of authorization, and not small measures tucked into spending bills, but a resolution adopted after serious debate authorizing the whole thing, setting out our war aims, and indicating when and how the authority will expire. The President says he has the authority to do what he wants, but wouldn't mind if Congress wants to tag along by voting him more authority. Members of Congress say variously, why is he asking, why isn't he already doing more without it, can't we wait and see what happens, can we go now? This potentially momentous turn in American history presents the usual spectacle of fecklessness that has characterized the war powers dialogue at least since the Korean War. It is clear that both the executive branch and Congress currently regard the Constitution in this area as an obstacle to be finessed. What if we thought about it differently? What if we looked at the Constitution as a guide to making better decisions? Yeah, what if we saw the Constitution as a guiding document? It's a pretty revolutionary notion. That is going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes